0: Okay, we've been discussing the Mahachatavisika Sutta, that is the discourse on the great forties. I think last time we were speaking about samasankapa, right intention. And first we explain the three types of wrong intention, or wrong thought the intention of sensual desire, the intention of ill will, and the intention of cruelty. Now we come to right intention, samasankatha. And here again, as just as in the case of right view, the Buddha makes this (coughs) distinction between two types of right intention. There is the right Intention which is mundane, that is the which is described as affected by taint, partaking of merit, ripening on the side of attachment, and then there is the right intention that is noble, taintless, super mundane, a factor of the path. Now, here we see sort of interesting the text gives a rather interesting twist. This explanation of right intention. But in all the other suttas which analyze the Noble Eightfold Path, when the Buddha explains what is right intention, he simply says intention of renunciation, intention of goodwill or non ill will, intention of non cruelty. But here, rather <laughs> strangely, I have to say, those three types of right intention are put on the side of the mundane right intention. The right intention which is not leading to final liberation, but is still on the side of say, on the side of the world, on the side of conditioned existence. <laughs> and then the Buddha defines the right intention which is an actual factor of the super path, of the truly noble path in terms of a definition which is actually very abhidhammic in character. In the Abhidhamma we find these strings of synonyms bound together and used as definitions of technical terms. And to understand, I think, to understand the basis for this th- distinction in right intention, we should realize that the Buddha uses a very, very precise method of psychological analysis when he sets out his teaching. And so what is called samasankapa Right Intention actually represents a particular way of functioning of a single mental factor, a particular... Chaitasika, or factor of mind. In the Abhidhamma, these mental factors of mind are called Chaitasikas. And here the Chaitasika, which functions in right intention, is in Pali, Vitaka, thought or thinking. Or we might explain Vitaka as purposive thought, purposive thinking. Not so much reflection, intellectual reflection, but purposive or intentional thought. Okay now this vitaka is one factor of mind which can function in a variety of ways. And when we have vitaka functioning in association with sensual desire, then it becomes wrong thought, wrong intention, it becomes karma vitaka sensual thought. When we have thinking, purposive thinking associated with anger and hatred towards people, then it becomes the thought of ill will, the apada vitaka. When we have thought associated with the desire to harm others, then it becomes the hingsa vitaka, the intention or thought of harming and injuring. But the same mental factor, vitaka, also arises in wholesome states of consciousness. In what we call kusala citta. And when vitaka arises in wholesome states of consciousness, then it can become, it becomes samasankapa, right intention. Now I explained last last time we met that the Buddha divides the path into two types of paths. One is the mundane or preliminary path, which is the path that we have to practice in our daily lives, the path that we have to develop through our own conduct and mental training. Then when this mundane path comes to fulfillment, to its climax, then it issues in the super path, which is a state of mind, state of consciousness, which leads directly to Nibbana. And so in our day-to-day life, both in ordinary activity as well as in meditation, what we have to cultivate is right thoughts, right intention of the mundane kind. This right intention by itself doesn't directly bring liberation. But it becomes part of the cumulative equipment that we need in order to reach the supermundane. So therefore, we have to develop thinking which is directed towards renunciation, that is detachment from desire, from selfish craving. We have to develop non-ill will goodwill, or loving-kindness. And we have to develop non-cruelty, the intention of non-cruelty, which is the thought of compassion. Okay, and when we develop these types of thoughts, then we are cultivating the mundane path factor of right intention. And these thoughts, these wholesome thoughts, will have different objects depending on the occasion. They'll be cultivated many times, over and over, and each one will have a very distinct character. The thought of renunciation is different from the thought of goodwill, and both of those are different from the thought of compassion or non-injury. Okay, but now, when the meditator takes up the practice of insight meditation, Vipassana meditation, then he is again cultivating the path factors. On that occasion, too, we would say he's cultivating mundane right thought. Now, he's not especially trying to cultivate renunciation, not especially trying to cultivate goodwill or... Uh, non-injury, but rather he's trying to cultivate insight into impermanent, suffering, non-self. But as he goes on developing this insight, his mind, his thinking, is accompanied by these three types of wholesome thoughts, at least from time to time by these three types of wholesome thoughts. Thought of renunciation, thought of non-ill will, thought of non cruelty now as the insight gets developed further and further, eventually it reaches its culmination, and then the mundane path gives rise to the super-mundane path. The super path comes in these four stages, or we can call them the four installments. The path of stream entry, which leads directly to the fruit of stream entry the path of once-returner, non-returner, and finally, the path of arhanship. <laughs> and when the super-mundane path arises, then the mind leaves behind all mundane objects and it takes as its direct object, nirvana, the unconditioned element. When this super-mundane right thought arises, in that, now when that super-mundane path emerges, within that path, there is this factor of vitakka. That factor of vitakka is right intention, samasankapa. But it's not directed in any way towards renunciation, ill will, or towards non-injury. Rather, that thought or intention, is directed to nirvana. Its object is nirvana. And for that reason, when the Buddha defines the supramundane right intention, he does so in terms of this string of synonyms which all just clarify the nature of this vitaka, or sankappa, this thought. He calls it here, and in Pali it's the Taka, the Taka, Sankapa, Eipaso, upana, Mental Fixity, I don't remember the Pali, Directing of Mind, Chitas Abhi, Niropana, and Verbal Formation, Vaci Sankara, in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is painless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path? This is right intention that is noble, a factor of the path. Okay, all of these terms just elucidate the nature of this sankappa so in terms of synonymous. Okay, so there's this one factor, vitaka, which the Buddha defines using different synonyms. It's thinking taka, thought, then intention because it's actually the purposive aspect of thought. Then this next expression, mental absorption, is interesting because the taka is not only thinking in the way when we reflect and ruminate about something, but the taka is also the factor in meditation, used in meditation to keep the mind fixed upon its object, to thrust the mind or absorb it into the object. That's why the Buddha lists vitaka as one of the factors of the first jhana. Because vitaka, when you are for example, developing a meditation subject, like say mindfulness of breathing, then you paying attention, breathing in, breathing out. It's vitakka, which is taking the mind and keeping it on the object, or thrusting it on the object. And so vitakka has this function of fixing the mind, and then when the mind is really fixed, of absorbing it, then vitakka is called cittasabhi niropana because it directs the mind to the object. And then it's called verbal formation, vachisankara, because also when we speak, what is responsible for forming the words and statements that we eventually utter is the same factor of thinking. If you don't have any thought, then you cannot speak. Even if you might object, well, people speak in their sleep. <laughs> That's because they're thinking in their sleep. If they weren't thinking in their sleep, then if they were in really deep sleep, then they wouldn't talk in their sleep. Okay, so, right intention in the supramundane dimension is this thought and mental fixation, mental fixation in one who's developed the lokutara the noble mind, whose mind is free from what is devoid of the asavas that taints. That is, who is cultivating the supermundane path, who possesses the noble path, who is developing the noble path. Okay, that is the truly supermundane right intention. Then the Buddha says, one makes an effort to abandon wrong intention and to enter upon right intention. That is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong intention. Mindfully, one enters upon and abides in right intention. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three states, the three states are right view, right effort, right mindfulness. These three states run and circle around right right intention. That is right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. Okay, maybe are there any questions about this, before we go further? Is this distinction of the two types clear? Because it's pretty, actually, it's a pretty difficult point. Okay, then we'll go on to Right Speech. Here again, the Buddha starts off and says, Right, in respect of right speech, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong speech is wrong speech, and right speech is right speech. That is one's right view. So even here, in regard to speech, in order to be able to distinguish what is wrong speech, what is right speech, one needs some degree of right view. Some people have the wrong view. They think the primary requirement is freedom of speech. This is in America especially. You should be able to speak anything you want without any inhibitions, any restrictions. And so people will write gossip columns and they will speak all sorts of gossip. They'll slander others. They'll delight in listening to gossip, listening and slander. They have no hesitations about speaking lies, they think if it serves your personal advantage, you should speak whatever you want, and so you can tell lies, Um, you can say whatever you want. Then there are some psychologists who say that in order to achieve mental well-being, Whenever you get angry, you should speak your mind. <laughs> don't be concerned with the other person's feeling. The only thing that really matters in this world is you yourself. So when you get angry, don't hold back. Don't restrain yourself. But just let go your torrent of angry speech. And that will lead to your own benefit. <laughs> that will also help others. <laughs> so all of this is... Kind of justification for wrong speech, which is coming from what? From wrong view. (laughs) So if one has right view, then one understands that certain modes of speech, even though they might give you some satisfaction, are really wrong speech. Even though you might enjoy indulging in them, but they lead eventually to one's own harm, and to the harm of others. And then there are other types of speech which it takes a certain determination and discipline to adhere to, but they will eventually lead to your welfare. And so this, to, even to understand this, even before you train in right speech, this is right view. Okay, now the Buddha is going to explain what is wrong speech, Musavada, that's false speech, Uh, pisunavacha, that's malicious speech, saying things to others, which, speaking to others in ways that are intended to create division between the person you're speaking to and other people that he has friendly relations with. then there's harsh or angry speech. This is speaking to others in very rough ways, which will hurt their feelings and cause them pain and even heartache. And then there's idle chatter, just gossiping about things which are of no benefit at all. Okay, so this is wrong speech. And then the Buddha, again, when he comes to right speech, he makes that distinction between the right speech, which is mundane, on the side of the taint, and the right speech, which is super-mundane, without the taint, a factor of the noble path. Okay, again, to understand these two aspects of right speech, We have to use the kind of analysis which is given in the Abhidhamma. I think the Abhidhamma comes later, but it makes clear... But the Abhidhamma method of analysis makes clear certain principles which I think are already implicit in the sutras. According to the Abhidhamma, right speech is not just speaking rightly. What is right speech? Does anybody know? Right speech is, again, it's a particular cetasika. It's called samavacca, which means right speech. But it's not just speaking rightly, but it's a factor of mind which belongs to a group called, in the Abhidhamma, the abstinences, or virati. To understand why right speech is a mental factor, consider what happens, let us say you've heard somebody's told you (laughs) a hot piece of gossip, and then you think, wow, I have to tell my friend about that. Then you meet your friend, and suddenly you're about to speak this piece of gossip, and then suddenly you remember, ah, if I speak like that, that will be indulging in wrong speech. And so you don't speak this piece of gossip, but instead maybe you talk about something else, maybe talk about the weather, or just shift the conversation. Now, when you decide not to speak the piece of gossip to your friend, and you restrain yourself from speaking that piece of gossip, at that point, you haven't spoken anything. And yet, by refraining from the gossip, then you are practicing right speech. So with their, with no speech, or let us say, not, not that you've met your friend, but, but then when you meet your friend, then you start speaking about other matters. Let's say, when you hear the piece of gossip, <laughs> then you go to the telephone and you start to dial a the number, then when you get maybe three or four digits dialed, suddenly you realize <laughs> you'll be engaging in wrong speech. Then you stop and you put down the telephone and just you don't make the call. Okay, when you stop, then you're practicing right speech because you're refraining from speaking the gossip, <laughs> but you haven't spoken anything. You've just kept quiet. And that shows that the right speech is actually the mental factor. The mental factor which exercises the function of restraining the disposition to speak in one of the four wrong ways, or which exercises the function of refraining from wrong speech. Okay, now, in our ordinary day-to-day life, when we practice right speech, this mental factor of right speech only becomes active on an occasion when we are inclined to speak in a wrong way, and when we deliberately, intentionally refrain ourselves from speaking in a wrong way. And there are four wrong ways in which we can speak. That is, the four mentioned under wrong speech, lying, uh, malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip or idle chatter. And so when one is not Deliberately trying to restrain one of these haught, wrong types of speech, but even say when one, if one is just sitting and practicing anapanasati or working at your job or doing anything, then right speech is not being developed. The mind is just in some other state. But when that temptation or inclination to either speak something falsely, to speak something false, to speak maliciously, to speak angrily, or to gossip. When the inclination to speak in one of these four ways crosses, enters into the mind, then one refrains oneself. That mental act of refraining, that is the work of right speaking. And so, right speech does not function in every wholesome state of mind, and whenever it does function, it functions in one or another of these four ways, not in all four of them, simultaneously. Okay, and this is the mundane type of right speech. The right speech, which the Buddha says is connected with the pain, which is partaking of merit on the side of attachment. Okay, now when the meditator is developing insight and he reaches the culmination of insight, then the supramundane path arises. And that supramundane path is a state of consciousness, a particular citta. And within that citta there are many mental factors, many cetasiyas. And one of those mental factors is the supramundane right speech. I should have said, let us just go back a few steps. Okay, what I Explain, I was explaining the, um, the right speech, the mundane right speech on the side of attachment. That is given in paragraph 19. Okay, now paragraph 20, we come to the super mundane right speech. Okay, now we have the meditator has developed insight up to its culmination, and when insight is fully ripe, right, then there emerges the super mundane path. A state of consciousness in which there is a collection or constellation of mental factors. And in that state of consciousness, each of those mental factors performs its own distinct function. And one of those mental factors is this same factor called right speech, one of the three viruttis or abstinences. And so here the Buddha gives the definition, paragraph 20, he says, What is the supramundane right speech? The desisting from the four kinds of verbal misconduct, the abstaining, refraining, abstinence from them in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is paintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is the noble super-mundane right speech. Okay, here again we have the string of synonyms which doesn't mean very much on the surface, but now the explanation reveals quite a lot. This super-mundane right speech is that one path factor of right speech which now functions in a very different way from the right speech in the ordinary mundane mind. Here, right speech is a mental factor which has the function of closing off the doors to any possibility of wrong speech in the future. Here, one is not deliberately trying to refrain from wrong speech by an act of will. Because now the mind has emerged from, even from the five aggregates, and it's now fixed upon Nibbana as the object. But in that same super-mundane past consciousness, right speech has the function or task of, supra- of cutting off, eliminating, eradicating the kilesas or defilements which motivate wrong speech. In the case of a stream-enterer, this elimination of wrong speech comes in stages. For a stream-enterer, the factor of right speech in the path consciousness will eliminate the possibility of speaking any words, making any statement which is of such gravity, of such weight, that it could lead to rebirth in the lower plane, the apaya bumi, the plane of misery. In the case of a... And it would seem for a stream entera... Certainly, it would eliminate the possibility of making any kind of serious false statement, false speech, um, or any any well, any well, let's say any kind of lies, any kind of uh, malicious speech, any kind of harsh speech, even any gossip which might lead to reaper in the lower realm. I think if you reflect on the implications of speech, you could see that speech could be really just as drastic and terrible a weapon as bodily action, in creating unwholesome karma. For the once returner, I don't know specifically what would be eliminated by the once-returner. For the non-returner, I think, any type, since the non-returner eliminates, eradicates ill-will, hatred, he can never speak, make any kind of malicious statement, peace to the because that's always motivated by hatred. And the non-returner can never speak any kind of angry speech or harsh speech. I think he might still be have a tendency, maybe even perhaps, to make some harmless, false speech. I don't know, actually. But he could still indulge in um, perhaps gossip or idle chatter, providing it has nothing to do with sensuality, since he's eliminated sensual desire. And then the fourth stage, the path of arhanship, in that super mundane path, the factor of right speech would eradicate any possibility of making any kind of engaging in any type of wrong speech at all. In the case of the Arhat, right speech completes the full function of this mental factor, and then there becomes even no need in the future for any effort at restraint in his speech. The Arahant just will naturally always conform to the principles of right speech, effort, effortlessly and spontaneously. Yeah, Bachi Sankara yeah. right yeah, is not speech itself. Bachi Sankara is intention or thinking, vitaka, because the Bachi Sankara, this verbal formation, is the mental factor which formulates words, which formulates speech. The what? Papa Kama. Well, I say evil action would be papa kamma would be committed principally through well wrong speech, well, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, or wrong thinking. Yeah, papa yeah, it's not one. It cannot be traced to one yeah. single mental factor. But maybe principally, since karma is chaitana in intention, then one would specify Chaitana as the factor behind wrong karma, of uh, papa karma. But this gets into rather subtle level of psycho- psychological analysis. Okay, so then the sequel to this section is actually the same as previously. We have um, the effort to abandon wrong speech and to acquire right speech, that is right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong speech. Mindfully, one enters upon and abides in right speech, that is one's right mindfulness. And so these three states, right you, right effort, and right, right mindfulness, run and circle around right speech. Okay, now we come to right action. Again, right view comes first. How does right view come first? One has to distinguish between wrong action and right action. That is one's right view. Okay, now what is wrong action, killing living beings, taking what is not given, and misconduct in sensual pleasure. Okay, these are familiar. Now in regard to right action, again we have this dual distinction between the right action on the side of the taint, the mundane right action, and the super-mundane right action. And the explanation is exactly the same. Okay, the right action that's on the side of the taint, the mundane right action, that's abstaining from killing living beings, abstaining from taking what is not given, and abstinence from misconduct and sensual pleasure. That is the definition, but what is actually intended Again, at the psychological level by right action is a particular mental factor, the second of the three abstinences, which is called right action. Because what happens when one observes right actions is that one refrains oneself, one restrains one restrains oneself, from a particular type of wrong action. One restrains, one refrains from wrong action. So somebody, for example, is tempted to steal. He sees he's in a shop, he sees that he can make a clear whisk away, an item that he would like, a small item, maybe a little pocket watch or affordable <laughs> radio transistor radio. Do they still make transistor radio? (laughs) (laughs) And then suddenly he remembers, ah, I've taken the precept to abstain from stealing, and so he restrains himself. That is the mundane right action. Somebody sees some insect flying around the house, he thinks, let me just swat it and get rid of it, (laughs) then he becomes aware, ah, I have to refrain myself from killing, and he deliberately holds himself back, and in that way practices right action. Okay, so in this, in the case of right action of the mundane kind, right action as this mental factor of restraint is being exercised only when one deliberately refrains from one of the types of wrong action and it always occurs in a different way depending on the occasion. Sometimes abstaining from killing living beings. On another occasion abstaining from stealing. On another occasion abstaining from misconduct in regard to sensual pleasure. But when one reaches the super mundane path, again, this is a state of consciousness made up of many mental factors. and within that state of consciousness is the mental factor the of the tankless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path this is right action that is noble, a factor of the path. Okay, in this super mundane path consciousness, the factor of right action occurs invariably. It's always present in the path consciousness, and again it has a special function. It's not refraining from one or another of these wrong types of action, but rather the task of super-mundane right action is to cut off, to eradicate the defilement responsible for wrong action. And so... I actually think, with the path of stream-entry, I think, the texts never actually say that the stream enterer is incapable of breaking the five precepts. What they say is that there are five things that the stream-entera is incapable of, which is Mattress killing his mother, killing his father, um, killing an Arhan maliciously wounding a Buddha, maliciously causing a schism in the Sangha. And so, what seems to me to be the case is that somebody who has reached stream entry and is aware of it, you know, within that lifetime, will not break any of the five precepts because he understands them. But just, this is my personal opinion, perhaps it's possible that after being reborn when he's still a boy or a girl, <laughs> and um, if it's a human rebirth, before encountering the dhamma and learning the precepts, maybe when playing with on the ground, he sees some insects. Maybe kill them. Maybe harmlessly tell a little child a lie. Perhaps that's possible. I don't know, because the texts don't say that the stream enterer, or at least the sutta texts don't say that the stream enterer is absolutely incapable of breaking the five precepts. But what we can infer with certain with certainty is that the stream-enter would not be able to break any of the five precepts in any way that could lead to a bad rebirth. So all kinds of gross violation of the five precepts would become impossible for him. In case of once-returner, certainly the disposition to wrong action would be diminished still further. In the case of the non-returner, it seem to me virtually no disposition to wrong action would remain. And in the case of the arahant, the Buddha says that there are nine things which the arahant is incapable of. Five of them relate to bodily action. That is, he's incapable of killing deliberately, intentionally killing a living being. Incapable of stealing. Incapable of any type of sexual activity. Incapable of speaking falsehood, deliberately telling a lie, and incapable of storing up objects of enjoyment like a householder. Those are the five bodily actions. Then the four types of thoughts that the arhat is incapable incapable of are thoughts governed by desire, thoughts governed by ill will, thoughts governed by delusion, moha, and thoughts governed by fear. Okay, then the sequel is the same. One makes an effort to abandon wrong action and to enter upon right action. That is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong action. Mindfully, one enters upon right action. That is one's right mindfulness. These three states, it's right view, right effort, and right mindfulness, run and circle around right action. Okay, maybe I will stop at this point, and then continue with the discourse the next time we meet. If there's any questions on anything that um, I explained, please feel free to ask. Any questions? Okay, then we will stop for the evening.